Brandon Cronin, and you're listening to the Avalanche Hour Podcast. Clap your hands. Clap your hands. You are tuned into episode 4.4 of the Avalanche Hour Podcast. I'm your host, Caleb Merrill. The Avalanche Hour Podcast is proudly presented by MND by TAS, an avalanche of solutions, and our good friends at Ten Barrel Brewing. Drink beer outside with additional support from InterWest Insurance. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people who have a curious fascination with avalanches. We certainly are ticking away at those fall months. It's already November 15th. Crazy. And some regions have enough snow to recreate on while some areas are anxiously awaiting the arrival of winter. I've just wrapped up my fall interview tour, and just like the squirrels are storing away nuts for the winter, I've cached a whole stack of great interviews with some of our community's finest individuals. It sure is nice to be home, and I've been trying to take advantage of the beautiful weather we have in the state of Jefferson while getting out on two wheels as much as I can. For those of you who are already riding and sliding on the snow, don't forget it is still early. Many early seasons we see early season avalanche accidents, unfortunately sometimes fatal. My opinion is that people usually underestimate the amount of snow needed to avalanche. Don't forget, even a small avalanche in the wrong place can be a game over. If there's enough snow to ride, there's enough snow to slide. Perhaps making things worse are the low tide conditions with lots of rocks and logs to beat you up in the bed surface were you to take a ride. Always treat closed ski areas as non-mitigated backcountry terrain in the early season. Ski patrols and mountain operations will be prepping the ski areas, and it's also important to give them the space they need to do so safely. So please obey closures even when the ski areas are not open yet. Join the conversation. Reach out to me with some of your favorite speakers from the 2019 Snow and Avalanche workshops that I know you attended. Hit me up at the Avalanche Hour Podcast at gmail.com or message me on the social outlets at the Avalanche Hour Podcast. I've already compiled a list of people I want to interview for next fall, and with your help, it will grow. There's still one more Snow and Avalanche workshop coming up on the 16th of November in Whitefish, Montana. It's sure to be a good time, so make sure you sign up if you are in the area. Speaking of snow and avalanche workshops, these great events would not take place without the financial support of the A3. That's right, the American Avalanche Association. And the A3 wouldn't exist without your support and participation. If you're listening to this podcast, chances are you should go ahead and become a member, affiliate member, or a professional member of the A3. Not only will it help you get some great deals on gear, but you also get the Avalanche Review publication in your mailbox four times a year, and you'll be able to better engage with our community. I recently asked Lynn Wolf, longtime editor of the Avalanche Review, what the A3 meant to her, and I liked her response. Lynn said that the A3 is the matrix that fills the spaces between all of the particles in our community. I like that. Join the A3 at www.americanavalancheassociation.org Do it now. Thanks to everyone who I sat down with over the past month in interviews. Also a huge thanks to Brendan and Emily 
as well as Stella and Rob for letting me land at their homes for a bit while gathering content for this podcast. Appreciate you guys. I'm stoked to share this next episode with you. It was super fun to sit down and chat with Brendan Cronin. Brendan and I have been friends through some other friends for a while now, and I've always known he has some things to say about snow and avalanches. I caught up with him in Jackson just as he was coming off of Teton Pass doing some maintenance work to the Glory Gazex units. Brennan has been a guide, avalanche educator, ski patroller, and now highway forecaster. Not to mention he is definitely a better ski bum than you. You can't help but feel pumped up by this guy's stoke and passion. And in our conversation, we talk about his career, the intricacies of forecasting for the highways and the Tetons, and talk about moments of learning from Brendan. Here it is. What's up, Brendan? Great to see you, man. Yeah, good to see you too, buddy. Yeah, thanks Welcome for... Welcome Jackson. All right, let's get it going. Brendan, I was hoping you could introduce yourself, talk about where you grew up and when you got interested and involved in, in the snow and avalanche world. Yeah, my name's Brendan Cronin. I grew up in Saugus, Massachusetts. Um, I think my interest in snow developed um, as a kid. My first job was snow blowing the driveways in the neighborhood. And um, I think my interest in the snow and avalanche world was sparked uh, outside of skiing, at least when I made um, during my last semester of college. We had a two-week spring break. Uh, I had a good friend that I knew from college. He and his now wife moved to Valdez, Alaska. They bought land there. He went. They both went to work for Valdez Heli Ski Guides. He as the maintenance man, her as the lodge manager at the old Santa Lodge. And being college students in Maine with a buddy who was working for a heli ski company, it made a really easy decision to go or where to go on our spring break. And so we did. Um, I had never skied west of New Hampshire at that point. I was still tele-skiing at the time. Where were you going to school? At the University of Maine. Oh, so real close to Sugarloaf. Yeah, I used yeah. to work as a shuttle bus driver at, on, at night and the weekends at Sugarloaf. Yeah, you probably drove me around at some point. No way. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Yeah, sure. Yeah, and Sugarloaf is one of those places, too, where – um, I learned how to be a ski bum. You know, I met guys who had lived at Alta for 10 or 15 years and they told me stories of that place. And that's the first place I saw a Jackson Hole Air Force patch. Um, it's where people told me about Jackson Hole. And then, you know, I going from Sugarloaf to Valdez, Alaska, I was floored. Dude, I was so far out of my element. <laughs> like it was, it's crazy to look back on. But that's where I met um, Jamie Weeks, Don Sheriff, Doug Workman, um, Kirsten Kramer, you know, people that Jeff Zell, you know, we got to meet the doctor for the first time. He was the first guy that I ever skied with. And I, I ragdolled down this run called Rock Island. I mean, I, uh, I was shocked. So you, so you like scraped together some money to go heli skiing? No, we were, uh, my buddy Mike and I got there with no plan other than our friend was working there. We got a rental car in Anchorage with no snow tires <laughs> and uh, we got rallied up there and 
um, my buddy Josh, who is now the owner of Black Ops Valdez, he somehow convinced the owner of Valdez Heliski Guides at the time that we were good workers, which we were. And they basically were like, here's the deal. If you just start shoveling, we're going to let you stay in, in the bunkhouse and you can, you're technically an employee for the next two weeks. And so we just shoveled out all the buildings, basically helped to open the operation up for the season. And at one point we were standing there shoveling and it had been snowing for three days. And my buddy Mike said, holy shit, look at that. And I turned around and that's the first time I saw the Chugach. And I was absolutely floored. Like, I mean, it was, it was overwhelming at that mm. point. And then a day or two later, they were like, hey, you two, come here, get in the helicopter. <laughs> <laughs> and on the heli manifest, they listed, they didn't know our last names. And so they listed us as uh, Michael Shoveler and Brendan Shoveler. <laughs> and that's how the Shoveler nickname started. And the, you know, I think at this point that, that really was, that trip is what turned me on to the idea of, you know, that you could even do that. You could be a guide, you could be a forecaster. You know, I knew about ski patrolling, but I didn't know about ski patrolling in the Western U S and mm -hmm. explosive work and all this. I mean, I was, I, I can't stress it enough how far over my head I was. It was wild. Yeah. You know, there was one point they didn't even want to let me in the helicopter again. Cause I was so, so bad. <laughs> so they made me like borrow somebody's Alpine boots and Kirsten Kramer went to bat for me. She's like, no, no, he's doing really good. Like he's really getting it. <laughs> so but that that was it that was that place and that experience still to this day is it's i feel so fortunate to have had that opportunity yeah you know and and uh i went back a, a number of times over the years and kept did, shoveling yeah i kept shoveling a couple of years as a dirt bag yeah only one year up there was i actually employed by valley's heli ski guides and, uh -huh. and that was it was like one of the worst snow years on record yeah. It was the year of the damnation facets, and that was wild. As an avalanche practitioner, to see people remotely triggering avalanches 200 meters away, and, and not small avalanches at all, like D3s, right? you know, just going in between February and the first week of May, it only snowed four times, hmm. which is kind of wild for that place. But from a professional standpoint to experience that, especially with that crew at that time, you know, this is like five or six years ago now. It was really, really special. Yeah. So, so from there, what, where'd you head? Um, well, I graduated college and I got a, I have an aunt in Salt Lake city who gave me one winter free rent and it was either go to Sugarloaf and be a snowmaker or go out west and give it a shot. And so I went out west and I had had a pretty bad injury in college. I broke my pelvis skiing and I was really impressed with how the patrollers at Sugarloaf handled it. And I thought, well, I'll be a, I'll be a ski patroller. So I went to, I got a job at Park City Mountain Resort because they hire a lot of people. Mm -hmm. It's a huge place. They kind of have to. Uh, and my first season was patrolling there. So I would do the reverse commute from Salt Lake to Park City and worked there. And then April rolled around and my aunt looked at me and said, you know, well, I gave you a winter. It's time to leave. Move along. You know, move along now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I went to a friend of mine that I had met working part-time at a restaurant. She was the one who was like, oh, you want to be a river guy? Don't do it in the desert. She's like, go to, go to Idaho. You should go to this little town called Stanley. 
I went to Stanley. I got a job working for the Sawtooth Adventure Company. Um, I still remember the first time I saw the Sawtooths because I was driving through Southern Idaho. I'm like, I'm like somebody lied to me, dude. They're they're full of shit. There's there's no <laughs> mountains here. And I got into Stanley and um, blew me away. Another place that's just unreal. Yeah, it's certainly a sight to behold, especially yeah. seeing it for the first time. It's wild. Yeah, you know. Yeah, that's where I met uh, or re-met Jamie Weeks. And he was running this snowcat operation on Togety Pass here outside of Jackson. And I asked him for a job. Mm-hmm. And I got a job as the apprentice guide. And I've been in this valley now for uh, this is going to be my 14th winter. All right. So somewhere in there, you started ski patrolling at the village? Yep. Yeah, so after three years at Togety, um the recession hit. Um, they closed our portion of the operation. The lodge had been bought by the Airmark Corporation, and they came in kind of cleaned house a little bit. Your portion being ski guiding on the ski Togi. guiding and the yeah the snowcat skiing. Okay, right. Um, and I came running into town. Yeah, I was fortunate enough to have a um, an awesome girlfriend at the time. Uh, moved in with her, and I went back to the ski resort to try to clean up my act as a snowmaker after being asked to leave three years before. Um, and I did, I got hired back on a couple of guys had to vouch for me. Um, but that's how I made my way back into that. And I did that for six seasons. Um, incredibly thankful for that job. Taught me a lot about working when you were just completely exhausted, beat down, tired, super unreal, harsh conditions. Mm-hmm. You know, some of the worst weather I've ever worked in. Um, but in that time I was applying for the ski patrol and I applied for five years. Um, just kept knocking on kept the door, knocking on the door. I literally used to slide my resume under the door of the patrol director's office, like multiple times a week. <laughs> <laughs> I want a job. That's um, how you do it. Yeah. And I got it eventually. And I was really fortunate to get the job and literally transition straight from from snowmaking to three days later, I was working as a what they call a rent patroller, where you're checked off and by the patrol to cover people's shifts. And I had gotten to know enough people that I went from up, you know, basically started working. Fortunately, like three to five days a week, and then the next year they offered me a full time job. Nice, yeah. Stoked. <laughs> so talk a little bit about what it was like uh, patrolling for Jackson Hole Mountain Resort and, and specifically, you know, the avalanche mitigation work and, and forecasting that went on there and, and being part of those teams running routes. It's unbelievable. Um, that mountain, and I know a lot of places are like it. I know there's, you know, you got Squaw, you got Telluride, you got Snowbird, Alta, all the big ones. But on a big day at the, at Jackson, um, you know, we've got 10 control routes, something like 55 personnel working on that. Um, and it still blows me away how they would pretty much get that mountain open by 9am on a regular basis. And it's quite different 
in a lot of places because we don't we have a few zones that might open later but because that whole resort is truly top down it usually all opened once that whole mountain is up and running and ready you know and, and you're cranking during the season it opens wall to wall yeah which you know I, I had the opportunity to do a ski patrol exchange at alta and and that's a really cool experience to watch like how they can open it in sections and pieces and kind of control the terrain but man when you got a tram that goes 4139 vertical feet off the top you're you got to get that thing open because they're going to go everywhere mm-hmm. and that's just the culture here and they do and they certainly do they there is you know you go down to alta and snowbird and it's people respect the closures here it's a little different yeah <laughs> you know but working with that team and working with those people and having that opportunity to go out and you know having been a guide kind of <laughs> And an avalanche educator as well. There's a big difference between those two sides of the avalanche industry and ski patrolling. Because when you're a patroller, as you know, you get to put your feet in it when it's weird mm-hmm. and understand what that feels like and see what an explosive can actually do and how it truly affects the snowpack or the weird days where you throw a two pounder in the snow and nothing happens. And then you're like, well, I'm going to put a two pounder on a stick. And the whole thing goes just that change in like three feet above the snow surface versus buried in the snow right. is pretty, um, pretty eye opening, and and for me, I think one of the best learning opportunities I had. Yeah, it's pretty amazing just uh, seeing so much snow move and avalanches um, through mitigation work. I think it's. I don't think there's any other better learning environment on avalanche dynamics. No, I would, I would totally agree. I, I think, um, you know, guiding and education, we spend our time discussing and doing our damnedest to avoid the hazard and ski patrolling. You go most of the time you go right into it, obviously with precautions, with, you know, the utmost safety of yourself and your team in mind, but you're still in it when it's weird. When we had that power line storm, uh, I think that's three or four seasons ago now. Um, 16, maybe? Yeah. To have the opportunity to be on that mountain with no power and they're running the tram on the diesel backup generator, which is a 22 or 2400 horsepower monster. And they're doing that so we can get up that mountain and try to keep things, quote unquote, under control so that when we can reopen to the public, we can do so safely and effectively was a pretty wild experience, you know. And thank God we had people on that patrol like, um, specifically Rennie Jackson, because he was one of those people who witnessed the similar storm cycle in 1986 in which Tom Raymer got killed, who was a patroller at the village. And Rennie was very adamant about putting out a really substantial or big air blast on a portion of the head wall. And sure enough, Rennie pulled out probably the biggest avalanche in the resort during that cycle. Um, and you know, I get kind of chills just thinking about it because what stands out to me 
from that cycle was the fact that the debris piles had like a blue hue to them. And the only other time I'd ever seen snow that like had this blue glow was making snow as a snowmaker. And that meant we put too much water in it. And to see that in a natural snowpack, I mean, we were, we were, I think it came in as like a half an inch or an inch less water than that cycle in 1986 that killed Tom Raymer. Mm-hmm. And it was such an eerie feeling. And I mean, that same time, we're dealing with that on the hill. And then the guys at YDOT were dealing with three highways shut down. And at one point, the you know these guys were told to keep the Hoback Canyon open. And they said they didn't want to. And they were told to keep it open. And next thing you know, people are trapped in that canyon. And like, I mean, the world was coming down. And then to come out of it at the end was, um, from a professional standpoint, it was... Uh, well, I'll never forget it. Sure. And it was unreal. Yeah. You know, we threw so many explosives. All while the village was closed. While the village was closed. With no power. No power. Yeah. And no medical backup at the bottom. And that was really something that we discussed a lot as a team. Like, hey, you know, we're we're approaching this. We're approaching it as backcountry skiing with bombs. Mm-hmm. And that's what it was. That place was wiped clean. And that was really cool to see to like, I mean, it got smoothed over. Yeah. When it reopened, that place was unbelievably, the skiing wasn't the best because it was so heavy and wet, but it was a total refresh button. Yeah. You know, it was wild. But yeah, not having or not knowing that, you know, there's no medical team at the bottom. You know, all the resources are actually out on the highway at that point, trying to get those power lines cleaned up and trying to get power restored and, yeah, it was definitely a different approach. And there was, I think it was really, in a lot of ways, it was fun because there was no pressure to mm-hmm. get it open. Mm-hmm. There was no pressure. It was, hey, just go out there and do your job. Take as, your time. Take your time. Be avalanche professionals. Enjoy this moment. Yeah. Right. You're probably never going to get to do this again. Right. And it was pretty fun. I mean, at one point they sent us out to, they're like, hey, you know, hop in a snowcat and go inspect the chairlifts. We're like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I knew the cat driver really well. I was like, why don't you just take us up there? He's like, okay. <laughs> you know, so that that part was pretty special. You yeah. know, and uh, it really was a pretty, pretty amazing thing to be a part of, and to see everybody come together. That mm-hmm. was one of the best parts. Yeah, and if, if you're listening to this and want to hear a little bit more about that storm cycle, you can go back, I don't know what episode. It was season two when I talked to Mike Reem, and we got into that a little bit more as well. So certainly a notable time in, in your career, I'm sure, and and in the history of the Jackson Hole Mountain Resort. So, Brendan, uh, you had a, a change of job venue in the last couple of years, and talk about your transition over to YDOT. Um. Well, it's actually only in the last year. Okay. Last year was my first season with them. Um, But the highway side of things um, is something that has appealed to me since prior to getting a job ski patrolling. Um, I don't know exactly why. I think a lot of it stems from um, the operational side of it. You know, it's a little, little dirtier at times. Um, but I think the biggest kicker for me or the, like the, 
the real um, moment was having a chance to talk with um, a lead forecaster on a different highway program. And, and this is an individual who had been a patroller for 14 years. He worked for another highway department for seven or eight seasons. And, you know, we were just kind of discussing his highway program. And he said, you know, I just got tired of trying to open a ski resort for a bunch of rich people. And that's not to say that I didn't enjoy opening the ski resort for my friends, Mm -hmm. but more and more, you know, you're watching 200 people go up the mountain who are paying who knows how much to ski quote unquote first while my buddies are waiting in line. Um, And now that I have in this position, friends that have to live in Idaho because they can't afford to live in this valley, yet they commute back and forth. You know, I, I take a lot of satisfaction and pride in, in knowing that I'm trying to keep this road open. Or I should say, I'm trying to keep the road safe, right? That's our first and foremost goal is to provide a safe highway environment for the traveling public and to know that I can do my best with the skills that I've been fortunate enough to learn under some incredible mentors that I've already mentioned is really for me what drew me to this highway side of it. Um, because I do, I have a lot of friends now that commute and some of them commute so that they can go work at the Jacksonville mountain resort as ski patrollers and do their best to get that mountain open on time. And, you know, having, having the chance and the opportunity to continue the relationship that I have with them specifically the patrol Mm -hmm. is huge. You know, I I absolutely miss ski patrolling. I just enjoy the aspect of my job now in that I like to think that I'm doing my best to try to help the greater good. Sure. You know, so let's break it down a little bit. I mean, we, we kind of take it for granted that everybody knows where Teton Pass is and, Mm -hmm. and, and so maybe you could just explain some of the physicalities of highway 22 and the other areas that you guys forecast for, um, and the flows of traffic and, and some of that logistics. Yeah. Um, the, the simple numbers, we've got four highway corridors. We got the Hoback river Canyon, the snake river Canyon, um, Teton Pass, and we also have the road two or three, well, actually, I think it's six or seven different avalanche paths north and south of the town of Jackson that do affect the highway. Um, so all told, we have about 44 lane miles, is how they describe it, with 65 different paths that could affect the highway at any time. So a lane mile is just a, a one-mile section of the road? or is that- Correct. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah, I mean, if you were to actually break it into, it would be more lane miles if you were to actually look at the fact that now we have uh, a growing number of what are known as five lanes mm. because we're seeing more traffic volume in and out of this valley. And so they're starting to widen the roads to accommodate for that to allow for better traffic flow. But the actual like one mile by one mile sections accounts to about 44 miles total of highways coming into Jackson that at some point are affected by avalanche terrain. Um, Within those 44 miles, Teton Pass, or also known as Highway 22, uh, is probably the busiest. That highway right now sees about 12,000 cars a day. 
during the winter, um, which at this point has exceeded the traffic volume of I-80 as it crosses the southern portion of Wyoming. It's the busiest two-lane road in the state of Wyoming, which isn't saying too much because Wyoming's not doesn't have all that many people, but it is a very, very busy road that has a posted speed limit of 55 miles an hour. Um, as far as avalanche infrastructure, in the Hoback River Canyon, within the cow and the calf avalanche paths, we have two, we have an Obelex in each of those. That's uh, basically a, it's flown, a, a avalanche reduction system that is flown into place each year by a helicopter. Um, they can be removed from their mounts during the season to be resupplied. They function on an oxygen, and, I'm sorry, a hydrogen and oxygen system. Uh, they use hydrogen because it's lighter, easier to fly. Um, next to those two is arguably one of the biggest avalanche paths in the Jackson Hole area. It's called the Bull of the Woods. And it has passive avalanche infrastructure in terms of these earthen mounds that were built in, I believe, 1973 by one of the early snow rangers in this valley, Yuri Christiansen who went on after his time here as a snow ranger for the U.S. Forest Service. He went to work for Mike Wigley's for a, a long time. Um, his uh, He has since passed away, but his wife, Margot Christiansen, um, was a longtime ski patroller at Jackson Hole. And she finally, I shouldn't say finally, she did retire last year as a, as a patroller. And uh, Margot was an awesome, awesome person, awesome mentor to me and um, just telling me some really, really cool stories of her and Yuri and, and their time spent here and up with Mike Wigley's. Um, so that that's the Hoback. We have, we have other avalanche paths there, but none that actually have infrastructure in them. Uh, the Snake River Canyon of note has the most avalanche paths of any highway corridor we monitor, but does not have any avalanche infrastructure in it. So we manage that one by just shutting it down when it reaches its tipping point. Um, Teton Pass and Mount Glory um, have our most avalanche infrastructure. We have four Gazex units, one in Twin Slides, three in Mount Glo or in the Glory Slide Path. We have two avalanche guards, which are also known as blaster boxes. They have explosives in them that are pushed out of the box by a black powder propellant. Um, and those are used to address some of the lower portions of the glory slide path. And they're also there as a backup to the Gazex. If we ever can't get communication with the Gazex system, we have the avalanche guards as a backup. And the backup to all of that is we still have a 105 howitzer mm -hmm. and it's, probably one of the oldest avalanche reduction techniques in the United States. It's still pretty awesome to use every time we get the chance to do it. We don't shoot it very often, but it's still really, really fucking cool to shoot that thing. <laughs> and that's on a trailer. You guys pull it no, out. It's, no, just... we, we pull it up there like the military would. We put it on the hitch of the truck and yeah. we tow it up the mountain and yeah. set it up. And the, the gun pad for it is, we joke it's the only flat spot on Teton Pass <laughs> where we parked that gun. 
Um, the other infrastructure that we have on, the, on Mount Glory, which is pretty cool, is we have uh, an infrasound system mm. that's basically an avalanche detection system. Um, what that is used for is when we come into the office in the morning, it's nice to be able to pull that up and look like, oh, we didn't have any activity over the, during the night. Or if we are doing a mission, say we're using the avalanche guard or we're using the howitzer and we've got 60 mile an hour winds and you can't actually hear a detonation, you can go back and look at the infrasound and it will show you if that charge went off. And can you do that all remotely if you're up on the pass or we cannot do the infrasound remotely but we can and we do uh we fire the avalanche guard and the gazex system from two different computer systems basically two different laptops that we have in the truck uh -huh. when we do a control mission wow it's pretty awesome yeah for being a small program uh we have a lot of uh, infrastructure that's uh our gazex we were the second in the country to install a Gazex after Caltrans. Mm -hmm. And one of the earliest Obelexes, right? Or is Correct. that not true? Yeah. And I believe the Obelexes went in in two, I want to say it was 2011. Uh -huh. I could be wrong on those dates, but that was a big push by Jamie Yacht to get those installed because prior to that, the cow and the calf in the Hobart Canyon were controlled with the howitzer. And the, the big reason for switching the Obelex was timing. Yeah. And, and by timing, I mean, like, getting that highway open again. You know, I, we can roll down into the Hoback and, you know, shoot the cow and the calf and be out of there in 15 minutes if it doesn't hit the highway. Mm -hmm. If you're bringing a howitzer down there, you got to close the highway, you got to stop traffic. And, I mean, if you've got people that are commuting from Pinedale and they're coming from Pinedale to go to the doctor in Jackson – and they might only make it into Jackson every couple of months, that really has a huge impact on their life. Mm -hmm. And that is the thing with the highway department. Our goal is to create a safe highway corridor, and we want to get those people to where they need to be. Yeah. Well, it certainly seems like you guys have a lot of tools in the arsenal for, for mitigation. One thing that you touched on was just kind of passive mitigation through closures. Um, so talk about kind of how often the, the pass closes or, or any of these highways closes due to avalanche hazard and how you all forecast for that, right? Because you, you don't want to preemptively close the highway, I can imagine, and then not really have an avalanche hazard. Or it, it, have you had any experiences when you've kind of missed the mark on that? Yes. <laughs> can i just leave it at that sure <laughs> um, no i mean it's a very dynamic process i'm sure and there's a lot of factors to think about it's not just getting the skiing public onto a slope to to recreate right like you're saying it's like people going to the doctor or people trying to pick up their kids or going to work and so yeah. you know there's a lot at stake here it sounds like and it's it's how, how do you handle all that very carefully yeah. um i would i would say to simplify it, we have a very good process, in my opinion, of an open discussion between myself and the other forecaster, John Fitzgerald, uh, about what we're seeing in the snowpack, why we feel the way we do, and use a variety of tools to get to that decision point to close the highway. 
sometimes it's very apparent, you know, if it, it, I mean, and I think of it like taking it back um, to the podcast that you did with Liam Fitzgerald. And I remember his quote and he said something to the effect of, I knew I should get out of this when I started making the mistakes in the tail end of my career that I was making at the beginning of my career. And that's something I think about a lot. Like you take it back to a level one avalanche course. If it's snowing an inch an hour or two inches an hour, and there's 30 to 40 mile an hour sustained winds, things are probably going to get weird. And maybe you should start thinking about closing the highway. Um, Yes, timing is something that we think about. By timing, I mean, what, you know, is there a commute going on? What time of day is the instability going to hit? You know, it's very hard for us to close that highway during the middle of the day Mm -hmm. to do a shoot because we have people crawling all over those mountains. And we, as a policy, do not do avalanche control if we have vehicles in that top pullout on Teton Pass and if we have vehicles at the Coal Creek pullout on the west side of the pass, simply because we do not know where those people are. Um, Even as the hazards rising for traveling public on the highway. Correct. That's the crux. Correct. And in order to deal with that, you can just close the highway Mm -hmm. and stop traffic, right? At that point, you at least know you can account for the vehicles and where they are, but we haven't accounted for the people. But if I can stop the traffic flow, then I have decreased the hazard of potentially having a skier or snowboarder trigger an avalanche onto a car or having a natural avalanche hit a car. Mm -hmm. Um, that's probably the hardest part of what we deal with. And it, it is not related to the skiers and the snowboarders. It's related to just stopping the flow so that we get people out from under those paths. And that's something that just about every highway department deals with. Sure. You know, you have an increasing hazard in the avalanche hazard index scale when cars are stopped, right. especially when they're sitting under paths. So you've just hired another temporary um, position within YDOT, the YDOT Avalanche Forecasting Program. Correct. And so there's three of you guys. This seems like a ton of work for three people, right? And so you must have some support from some partnerships, Wyoming Highway Department, I'm guessing, and then the rest of the DOT team, which is certainly an integral part of keeping these roads open, right? Yeah, and I think that's a very good point. Um, myself and the rest of the forecasting team, our job is to determine when to open and when to close that highway due to avalanche hazard. Sometimes that highway gets closed because the road is a literal sheet of ice. Mm-hmm. And being that we are technically part of the highway maintenance team, we're going to be out there then as well. You know, I, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that I enjoy running a plow. I had to plow Teton Pass for the first time ever. And it was wild. <laughs> I have, I, my hat is off or however the hell you put it to those guys. That is full on plowing yeah. that highway and, and they keep it open. Our job is to determine when to close it or open it again. 
those boys and girls, they are the, the hardest working individuals that I've encountered so far within the avalanche industry. And they are a huge part of what we do. I take a lot from when those guys call me and tell me that road cuts are starting to slide. They're or, throwing snow up on the banks and starting to see yep. snow come down. Yeah. And, yep. you know, myself and um, my coworker, John, we, we do spend a lot of time in the rotary plow. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, we will shoot that thing at the road cuts to try to trigger them as we're going through them, mm-hmm. knowing full well that they'll dump on the road and then we'll back up and we'll clear that debris. But we also get that, yeah, from our plow drivers. They're going to call us up. But, you know, they're in the truck at 3 in the morning. And it's not uncommon for us to get a phone call by four about, hey, this has happened. And then we're out of the bed and we're headed that way just to go look at what they're talking about. I mean, we've got one guy. This is his 21st season plowing the pass. We had a plow driver this year who is um, sad to say he's not coming back. And it's not because he passed away. It's just he's finally tired of it. But he was a temporary employee that came in every season for 50 years. Wow. I asked Larry. And that's the guy. He's been doing it for 50 years. I, I picked his brain about every avalanche corridor or highway we have. I'm like, Larry, what is, what's this do? What's this do? What's this do? And to lose that resource is huge. Yeah. I mean, that guy is an absolute atlas. He'll right. tell you every avalanche cycle he's ever, ever seen. He doesn't even ski. Yeah. But he probably has a better feel for what's going on than any avalanche professional in this valley. Yeah. And anybody that would argue that has just got too big of an ego. Right. <laughs> yeah, the Rolodex or the slide deck in his head must be huge. That's unreal. I mean, he's yeah. born and raised in this valley. He has seen some things that we might never see. Right. You know, and and so yeah, to bring it back to the the team aspect of it, those those operators and that team is a huge part of what we do. They are our eyes and ears, and and you have to put a high level of trust in them, and their verbiage and how they talk about it might not be as cool and as hip as the swag standards but you know when they call me up and they tell me that they got six inches of, of glop on the road i'm i get it gets my hackles up sure and i'm sure they care just as much as you guys about keeping that road open yeah and, and i think they really enjoy it yeah you know and we keep you know kind of focusing on teton pass that's because what everybody thinks of and the other canyons are just as active but no i i mean we got we have one guy that commutes from afton wyoming to plow teton pass that's a, about an hour and a half drive every day mm. we've got another gentleman who commutes from hoback ranches to plow teton pass that's about an hour and a half as well uh, and then we have another gentleman that lives in kelly wyoming which still that's almost 45 minutes to get to the shop to mm. then go plow really wild piece of highway when it's mm-hmm. really cooking up there yeah and then we have um this lady who came on and she's going to step up and plow the pass this year as well and she has to commute from alpine wyoming that's an hour drive and they get a kick out of it yeah you know like i said i plowed the pass this year for the first time and i don't ever want to do it again <laughs> <laughs> at least not in the big truck right. maybe the rotary plow again but yeah. that sounds, thing only goes three miles an hour sounds pretty wild <laughs> So, Brennan, uh, we've got a, a listener question here, and I might kind of rephrase it a little bit. But, you know, you, you spoke about how it's pretty easy to to forecast when it's super obvious, right? And and, and we use that kind of meatball snow science. It's, it's time to shut her down. But, you know, when you have some high-pressure building and then 
maybe smaller storms that are coming in and building hazard over time. What are some of the tools that you use for data collection and, and how do you use that information, both the snowpack data and, and the weather observations to formulate your forecast of hazard? Um, and I should just mention this is from Joe Sakio. Hope I said that right, Joe. But uh, what are your thoughts on that? I think, you know, the biggest thing for me when creating the hazard forecast is the process and going through the same process every single day. And I think that process extends to as simply as opening the same web pages in the same order every single day. Um, I think a lot of my friends in my personal life and, you know, in my skiing life would describe me at times as a bit of a loose cannon, but I recognize that and that's what forces me to create a good process, right? To go through the same motions every single day. You know, I like to get into the office, I sit down at the computer, I turn that thing on and I open up, I think I usually start with, I like to take a big picture of it and look at the jet stream loop, right? Where's our upper air? How's it moving? And then I start pulling up specific pages for your precipitation forecast. I like to look at the HER, the RAP, the NAM, the GFS. Uh, the University of Utah has an awesome one called the, the Plume. Um, it's a bit tricky to find it on the U of U's website, but it gives you a good spread of all these different weather models and when the timing is going to occur as to where and how much precipitation you're going to get. Mm -hmm. um, and then for me, I like to then pull up various pages within the HER and the NAM and the RAP and look at what the winds are doing at certain levels within our atmosphere, you know, specifically those 700 millibar winds, that's about 10,000 feet of elevation. That's our summits roughly for the forecast area that we work in. And I kind of wrap my head around that. And then I look at what our weather station is doing. And, you know, to be honest, maybe sometimes I pull up the weather station first cause I know it snowed a bunch the night before, but it's the process of, going through that and looking at, okay, cool. My weather station at 8,200 feet on the West side of the pass, I got six inches of snow. It's got on the weather station, at least it's showing like 0.13 inches of water. Then I'm going to go to the big sheet as we call it. That's put out by the Bridger Teton avalanche center. And that's a list and sheet of all of the weather stations within the Bridger Teton national forest. And I, and I would like to say that that is a huge resource to any, avalanche forecaster in this valley to know that those guys are in that office consistently early in the morning crunching data to put it in a big spreadsheet that we all can look at and i look at that like what did they get at 9600 feet what did they get at the mid mountain plot at 8100 feet what were the winds doing on the summit and then at that point i start shifting gears a little bit and kind of going back through our data for the last few days and then i pull up the forecast discussion out of the National Weather Service in Pocatello, Idaho. What are the people upstream thinking? Then I pull up the weather forecast from the National Weather Service in Riverton, Wyoming. What are the people on the downstream side thinking? Um, 
And then at that point, after I've come up with kind of a weather forecast that we keep in-house and kind of discuss the nuances, or at that point, I guess I'm just talking to myself because I'm still in the office alone. But what am I going to present to my plow team for the day as far as weather goes? And then as far as an avalanche hazard forecast, I take all of that information that I've just gathered based on the data collection. Then I look back at our data that we've collected over the last few days from the snowpack and start piecing all that together to create my hazard forecast for the day. Um, and I think the biggest thing is just the process, mm-hmm. right? Being consistent day to day and you start to notice and recognize various patterns. Right? Like I said, I am not known to be the most tight ship, but in those situations, I like a good system. And I do that for a reason of knowing myself pretty well, that I put the same pants on every day. I put my backpack on and it has the same kit in it every single day. I don't have three or four different systems. It's easier for me to just move through the same process every single day. And I think to, to answer that gentleman's question, I think that's what you need to do in this profession is have a good system and then be open Right After I'm done creating that forecast and I've put it up on the board for the plow team to see and my coworker has walked in the office and we've discussed the incoming hazard or what we're dealing with for the day or the next 12 to 24 hours, that's kind of the framework we think in in terms of timing, closures and whatnot for the highway. I then start making phone calls. Right, I talk to the guys occasionally, guys and girls at the Bridger Teton Avalanche Center. You know, I have a really good relationship, working relationship Lisa Van Skyver and Bob Comey and Chris McAllister and Mike Ream. But outside of them, I've got good friends who work for Exxon Mountain Guides and Jacksonville Mountain Guides. And I'm going to call them if I haven't seen what their forecast is for the day. And I'm going to chat with them a little bit. And then if the ski resort's doing avalanche control and we're not, which is more often than not the norm because it's a ski resort and they have to take care of the hazard for a large number of people skiing who are going to get into every tricky little pocket. Mm-hmm. I absolutely call those guys. You know, my good buddy, Bobby Griffith. I call Josh Pope. I call Eric Worth. Now, these are people that I know and trust and I've skied in the backcountry, and I'm having an understanding of what's going on at the ski resort. I can say, Oh, what routes were run today? And what did you see? And calibrate all of that to what I'm dealing with on the highway. And it's not uncommon for me to call them midday and just say, Hey, what's going on? Have you got, you know, is this still open? Is this shut down yet? What are you seeing up on the top of the tram? So, so Brendan, you said you're, you'd like to stay open to maybe changing your forecast, I think is what you're getting at when more information's coming at you throughout the day. Correct. I don't know that I would necessarily make dramatic changes. Sure. But you have to be open to the possibility of it, you know. I think a lot of what you're saying translates really well to recreational backcountry skier as well. Like having a ritual, having a system, like you said, whether it's packing your pack the same way or packing it the night before to looking at snow and weather avalanche observations from the area that you're planning on going to and having that same system that you use every day. I think that's really important. Um, I'm really glad that you made that point, even though it's from an operational standpoint, you know, I think that translates well to a lot of our listeners here. Yeah. And I guess 
to add on to that, I do the same process when I'm going back and sure. yeah. It's just easier for me to stick with it. Yeah. You know, our job, we're on call 24 hours a day, seven days a week in the winter. I don't really get to turn this snow dork brain off until June. I hope it's by June. Yeah. I would assume you make your coffee the same way every morning. You know, you just like you gather your information for the day. Yeah. At least a full French press every day. Right. <laughs> Sometimes three. By eight o'clock in the yeah, morning. Exactly. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Um, so I want to dive into maybe a little bit of a tougher question. It's certainly, you know, I'm an outsider here. I'm not a local in the Tetons, but when I think about Teton Pass, I think about a lot of people skiing and riding above an open highway with different levels of regard for their actions affecting other people below them. Thoughts on that? It's a big topic and, uh, you know, we can... You can talk as long as you want about this. Well, I think I think you did a really good job of keeping it kind of vague there and leaving <laughs> leaving myself to just like walk off a cliff on this one. <laughs> um, yeah, I think I think what you just said is, is very key. Certain or different levels of disregard or maybe regard. Um, I have a lot of friends that ski Teton Pass, and we can even narrow it down. The north versus the south side of the road. There is no avalanche terrain on the south side of the road that affects the highway. You can do whatever the hell you want over there. In my There's opinion. a lot of good skiing over There's there. There's incredible skiing. There's also a lot of good skiing on Mount Glory that doesn't affect the highway, right? The most active avalanche path that we have on Mount Glory is called Twin Slides. It's in the name. Yet, when we had a skier-triggered avalanche on March 1st, which was the first day that the Bridger Teton Avalanche Center had rated the hazard at considerable. After it had been at high for three days, somebody set foot near on it, whatever. They claimed they had no intention of skiing of it. If you had no intention of skiing of it, why did you go out there and do a kick turn on the edge of it? Because when we got in a helicopter that day and we're lobbing explosives out of it, there were tracks off the top of that mountain that didn't go into avalanche terrain that affected the highway. Hmm. Right? It's it comes down to the individual, and that's all it is. Who do you think you are, and why are you doing it? There are people that commute that highway who have families at home who don't ski, who don't actually maybe even recreate in the winter, right? But they go to work in Jackson Hole because it's the maybe the best paying job, and they commute from Idaho Falls, which is an hour and a half with good roads every single day. And people don't think about that at all. People are more worried about their latest Instagram post, Twitter feed, whatever. And don't get me wrong. I got one. I like Instagram. The pictures are great. I think of it as kind of a funny thing to show my friends and family like what's going on in my life. But I think for other people, that's not the case. And, and I think that there is a really, really incredible group of daily users on Teton Pass who are incredibly responsible individuals. I've talked to so many people in that parking lot who flat out tell me, they're like, I just don't ski on the north side of the pass. Or I never ski twin slides or glory slide or shovel slide or rocky gulch. Those are all things that affect the highway very easily. You know, and I think that's just it. It's like 
what is your regard for not only your personal safety, but the people around you? Mm-hmm. I th- and I don't think it's just Teton Pass. No, it's I think it's not. society in general is kind of falling away at this point, but that's <laughs> like, that's like six other podcasts we could, <laughs> <laughs> we could build out of this. And like I said, you really left me open there to walk off the cliff. Um, but I appreciate that because it is a hot topic. It's very important. Um, it affects what we do as professionals. It just comes down to being conscious and aware of your actions and how you can affect other people. Because on the right day, twin slides is a phenomenal ski run. Hmm. Skiing glory is phenomenal. But I've lived here, this is coming up on my 14th winter, and I can tell you in complete honesty, I've skied the gut of glory 10 times. Because I did, even before this job, I just didn't want to be the guy that made the wrong call that hit the school bus full of children. Right. You know, because there's, and there's so much other skiing. No. And I, and I think, uh, you know, you mentioned it when we sat down your, your podcast or discussion with Jamie Yacht, who's one of the previous forecasters here. Um, and, and I think for a lot of people, or maybe not a lot, but for some people, there is the perception that that terrain is quote unquote safer because there has been some form of avalanche control done. But those GASX systems, those GASX systems are used to address large-scale avalanches that may affect that highway. The Jackson Hole Mountain Resort also has GASX in place. I worked on a particular control route at that ski resort that had GASX, and yet we still would run hand charges through that route after mm-hmm. the Gazex had been fired. Not all the time, but we still did. We do not have that luxury on Teton Pass. Yeah, you're firing those racks for hazard that's going to hit the road. Correct. Right. Yeah, and that's what I think a lot of people don't quite understand is that Again, our goal is to provide a safe highway system. Not providing no, safe skiing for Not anybody, providing safe riding. skiing. You know, we, we, like a lot of highway departments, function in environments where there may be natural avalanche activity, but it's small and it's not going to hit the highway. When we close it, we've reached a point where we feel like if we had a natural avalanche, it would affect the highway. And I think this discussion specifically about that is um, what people need to understand is that we are not doing avalanche reduction to protect skiers. And there are there's a growing community that thinks we should. And I completely disagree because if you're willing to go into the mountains well, you need to be willing to be accountable for yourself. And I think we have a growing society, not just skiers and snowboarders. We have a growing society that is unwilling to be accountable for their own actions. Well said. <laughs> I didn't know we were going to get political. <laughs> I guess it's not political yet. <laughs> Brennan, I was hoping you could maybe recount a story of, of, you know, either personal skiing or professional skiing or working that, 
maybe it was a close call or a, a near miss or, or just something that hits you right in, in the side of the head that changed the way that you operate in the avalanche environment? You know, I thought, I, I looked at this question. You were nice enough to send the questions ahead of time, and, and it's really helpful. Um, and I thought of a couple of different ones, uh, but then one just popped into my head that um, still is a huge part of my decision-making process. It was, oh, man, 11 years ago now, and I was working up at Togety for the snowcat skiing operation, and we went out and we're doing recon, just myself and one other guide and the cat driver. And at that same time, it was the avalanche cycle that the, the restaurant on top of the head wall, or sorry, not on top of the head wall, but at the top of the gondola at the Jacksonville Mountain Resort, the same avalanche cycle that that building got hit and will, windows blown out and people trapped inside and it, it, a pretty wild cycle. Again, another one that will go down in history. And we were up there on Togety doing our own thing and, you know, oh, we're in a different snowpack. It's a different area. I was 26. I was pretty young. Um, and I got on the slope of the run we skied the most I wanted to check conditions on it because that was kind of like our bread and butter run. I knew if I could get clients to ski that, that they were going to be stoked. You know, my tip was going to get better, whatever. So I got on slope and I dug a pit and I was relaying all the info back to my, my other guide. And I'll never forget, he was like, he didn't like to call me shoveler. He called me shovey because he liked to pick on me a little bit. Um, this was the big guy? This was the big guy, the big man. Yeah, you know the big man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's you, Zoner. We're talking about you. <laughs> but anyway. He probably doesn't know what a podcast is. <laughs> <laughs> but I got on slope. I'm sending, you know, reading the results that I'm getting back to my, my co-guide. And he said to me, man, I don't know. Like, I don't think... Big Don would appreciate us even being on this slope right now. And he was talking about Don Sheriff and we had taken our level three through Don a couple of months earlier. And Don's a huge mentor of mine. Um, and, and, uh, you know, obviously nice enough to give me a job at one point. So I get off the slope with pretty, I, and I don't remember the test results. I don't remember the test scores, but I went to the Ridge and I skied down to our quote unquote safe spot. And I, I radioed back up to, to our, our big guy. And I said, hey, man, just, just come to the ridge. Like, I don't, it, you're right. It's not good. Just go to the ridge. Um, but his background is in ski patrolling. And he did what any good ski patroller would do. And he put in a ski cut. Well, he outweighed me by 100 pounds, maybe more. And he ski cut through my ski tracks. And fuck, sure enough. That whole thing came down and he was fine. He skied right off. Like he did it correctly. And I will never forget staring at that thing as it was coming at me. And I, as he describes it, he was like, you went full wily coyote. Like your eyes bugged out of your head. You're like looking around, like didn't know where to go. And I, like I said, I was pretty young and I just dove like five to 10 feet to my left and just grabbed onto the biggest 
tree I could see with the mindset of, well, this thing hasn't been wiped off the mountain yet. It'll probably hold on. I'll probably be all right. And I bear hug that thing. Um, and all the debris flow started coming around me. It, uh, I had, um, Fritchy Turing bindings on at the time. It didn't pull the ski off my foot, but it did release like the Turing mechanism and it buried me up to my waist. And it's true, man. That shit sets up like concrete. Mm. And he called me on the radio. He's like, hey, Shelby, you all right? I'm like, yeah, I'm good, man. But uh, I might need some new pants or something, you know, <laughs> classic. So I dig myself out and I never forget looking to my right from where I had just been. And my ski tracks were fine. But being a pretty inexperienced individual at that point, like I thought I was going to get wiped off the face of the earth. You know, so to have that be one of my worst experiences as far as an avalanche goes, I feel really fortunate. Mm -hmm. And knock on wood, I have been very, very lucky in my career that that has been my closest call. Um, and I, and I take it back to, um, Lynn Wolf's comment or statement, you know, were you lucky or were you good? And mm -hmm. that day I was fucking lucky. Mm. No question about it. Absolutely. No question. Um, and that's still the one that I think of all the time. Right. And I've had other stuff happen sure. and been lucky, but that's the one where I actually like got, grabbed by the dragon and it held on and thank God I had a hold of that tree. Hmm. Well, thanks for sharing that, Brennan. Um, you know, certainly we're all trying to play the long game here, right? And, mm -hmm. and uh, conservative decision-making, especially when you have other people's lives in, in your hands, whether you're ski guiding or, or forecasting for the highway or open in the ski area, you know, it's, it's nothing to take lightly and, um, Thanks for all the work that you and, and the team that you work with does on, on the highways of Wyoming. Um, I'm sure the public appreciates that and, and the skiers that are trying to go responsibly ski off the pass as well. Um, so let's uh, raise a glass, a, a 10-barrel beer. and uh, <laughs> Cheers. Cheers. Thanks, Hell yeah. thanks for making the time. This has been super fun. It's been, yeah. been fun catching up with you too. Yeah, thanks, buddy. I appreciate it. All right, later. See ya. enjoyed that one i know i did send me your feedback please email me at the avalanche hour podcast at gmail.com let me know what you like about the show let me know what you think i should change i want to hear your thoughts if you are enjoying the show please rate and review it on whatever platform you listen to your podcasts on check out the website at www.theavalanchehour.com to see guest bios, look for past episodes, or buy a sweet hat, cancuzzi, or volet strap to help support the show. I've been getting a little bump in some orders these days, so get yours in today. Got those sweet camo trucker hats in. Don't forget to give us a follow on the socials. We are at the Avalanche Hour Podcast. Our artwork was created by Mike T. You the man T. 
Music today at the start of the show was Funk It VIP by Grammatic and Defunk off of Grammatic's new album Recoil Part 2. You can download it for free on their website. Pulling us out of this hour was So Far by Anatech. Use of the tracks are made possible through the permission of the artist or the Creative Commons license. I will see you back here on December 1st. Until next time, stay tuned, stay safe, and keep having fun out there. Cheers. Listening to the Avalanche Hour podcast. Excuse me. Within, you know, when, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. Stand by. Yeah, buddy. <laughs> um, I still like to go out and have a good time in the winter, but.